Christians. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely, by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights, and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. Holy One of Israel has created it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open this word to us, 
that we would see you and your son clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you like history? How about you children? Do you like history? There's differing opinions on this, I know. Um, I loved history as a child, but it's probably because my parents got me this set of books, an illustrated history of Great Britain. It was a lot of fun. It had the stories of all of these interesting kings and queens, like King Alfred or Queen Elizabeth. I just loved it. But one of my favorite characters was the Earl of Warwick. It was sometimes called Warwick the Kingmaker. Now, many of you have probably never heard of him, but what I kind of liked about the Earl of Warwick, and maybe it was just because we went to his castle a lot when I was a little kid that made it stick in my head, but what I kind of liked about him was he wasn't a king, but he made the kings, you see. He was in the backgrounds controlling it all. And in some ways, that's more interesting than being a king, isn't it? The man behind the king. Well, today... Our passage is going to tell us about a great king, one of the greatest conquerors that's ever lived. But more importantly, it's going to ask us, who is behind this king? Who has raised up this king? Who is really in charge? So we're going to see three points from our passage today. First, we're going to see that God's sovereignty over history is shown by the exaltation of a powerful king. Second, we're going to see that God exercises his providence to deliver his people. And third, we're going to see that God transforms the wilderness into a garden. So we're going to see God raise up a king. We're going to see him deliver his people. And we're going to see God transform the wilderness into a garden. And then we're going to see how this passage connects to Jesus as we do every week. Before we jump right into point one, though, a piece of context from verse 1. Verse 1 sets the context for the whole chapter. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Okay, so this verse is a court summons. God is, is summoning all the peoples of the earth into his courtroom to hear him give his judgment and to make an account of themselves. Uh, he says, he, he tells them to renew their strength, and that's a bit of an ironic echo. Do you remember um, the end of the previous chapter, verse 40, said, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. It's that wonderful verse about mounting on wings like eagles, but now God tells the nations to renew their strength. It's as if he's saying, you think you have strength? Well, let, let's see what you've got. Let's see what you guys can produce without relying on me. Okay, so in everything else that follows, I want you to remember this basic setting of a courtroom scene because it helps some of the features of the text stand out. So, got it? Okay. First point, God's sovereignty over history is shown by his exaltation of a powerful king. Verses 2 to 3. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Okay, so we're told here about one from the east. We aren't told precisely his name yet. I think it's likely that this is talking about King Cyrus, who we're going to meet later on in the book. Um, but from what we're told about him, 
He, he's obviously a great military leader, right? Um, he's undefeatable, it seems. He stomps over kings and nations, scattering them like chaff, and nothing can stand in his way or trip him up. Verse 3 describes how he's able to travel unhindered through difficult paths. Um, and ESV has, by fat paths, his feet have not trod. But we could take the same Hebrew phrase as a general statement. We could translate it, by paths which one cannot travel with one's feet. And in other words, for a normal person, these paths are impassable. Normally, people can't travel on them, but this king is able to forge his way through them. Um, actually, ancient Near Eastern kings liked to boast about their ability to um, make their way through uh, difficult terrain on their campaigns. Uh, Sennacherib, an Assyrian king who was actually mentioned earlier in the book of Isaiah, uh, says in his annals, I proceeded through the gorges of the streams, the outflows of the mountain, the rugged slopes in my chair. Where it was too difficult for my chair, I leapt forward on my own two feet like a mountain goat. I ascended the highest peaks against them. And already about 500 years earlier, the Assyrian king Tukulti Ninurta I boasted, with my surpassingly strong might, I frequently traverse impassable rocky mountains, the pass of which no other king knew. So this is something kings boast about. Like, no, the, their enemies can't get away from them. Even if they go hide in the mountains, they'll find their way through this difficult terrain and go kill them all. So this king is able to penetrate through difficult terrain in pursuit of his enemies. But why is he able to do this? In verse 2, ESV describes him as one whom victory meets at every step. But if, if you look, there's a footnote in your ESV Bible, or if you're reading another translation, it might say something different, because that word victory is more literally righteousness. It's actually a bit of a puzzling phrase, and, and commentators have had difficulty for it. it. It seems to say something like righteousness meets him at his feet, or it could be actually righteousness calls him at his feet or something like that. I think probably righteousness meets him. What's going on here? What in the world does that mean? I think Psalm 85.13 can help us out a little bit here. Psalm 85.13 says, Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. It's a similar picture of like righteousness going out and making a path for somebody. Actually, in Psalm 85, it's the Lord for whom righteousness is going before and making a path. As God comes to his people in blessing, righteousness goes before him and prepares his way. Um, and I actually think that this is the same righteousness here. It's not Cyrus's own righteousness that goes before him. I don't think the passage is saying that Cyrus is such a righteous dude, like he's very holy. Um, rather, it's borrowed righteousness. It's the Lord's righteousness which is going forward and making a path for Cyrus. I'm going to ask you to remember that thing I told you to remember. This whole scene is a courtroom metaphor, Right? Um, you see, God has sent Cyrus as judgment on the nations and also as a means to keep his promise to his people Israel. So Cyrus's nonstop military success actually demonstrates God's righteousness. I, I think that's the idea that brings us together here. And the passage also says, of course, that the nations are given to Cyrus. Cyrus doesn't succeed because he's such a great and powerful king, as the Assyrian kings would often boast, but because God allows him to. I think that's maybe why we don't get his name. You know, commentators have 
disagree. Is this Cyrus? Is this somebody else? Who is this figure? But that's the wrong question. It's not the question the passage is asking. It's not who is this great king, but who has stirred up this great king? That's what the passage is focused on. And then again in verse 4, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I wonder if you have any guesses as to who the passage is talking about. Kids, who, who, who do you think raised up this king? I wonder if you have any guesses. Um, by the way, I'm going to give you a little trick for if you're ever in Sunday school or something, and your attention, your attention just, you're trying to pay attention, but your attention wanders, and the teacher asks a question. You can always guess that the answer might be God. Just go ahead and give it a try. Sometimes it's not, but it's always a good guess. And that's a really good guess for the book of Isaiah. In these chapters and following, when we see Isaiah asking who, the answer is usually God. And so the answer is here as well. This is how the passage answers the question in verse 4. I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. Or, Or we can maybe translate, I am the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The Lord introduces himself as the one who exists before all things, preeminent, and who continues to be who he is even to the end. We kind of have the first version of this Alpha and Omega language we're going to find later in Revelation, right? Um, The phrase, I am he, is kind of like, sounds a little weird in English, I think. Um, It's simple on the face of it. It's just the Hebrew way of saying, it's me. (laughs) Who is it? It's me. Um, But many times in Isaiah, it actually seems to have a deeper meaning as well. Um, And already earlier in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 32, 39, we find this phrase, I am he. And there it seems to be actually another version of the statement, I am. Do you remember the story of Moses at, uh, you know, meeting with God at the burning bush, and and he wants to know God's name, and the meaning of God's name is, I am that I am. Well, this is kind of a different Hebrew reformulation of the same idea. And the Greek translator of Isaiah got this right. He put, ego eimi, I am, as the translation. And that, that creates an interesting pattern. We have, at the beginning, we have the divine name, Lord. And Lord there is the name of God. We sometimes pronounce it Yahweh, although we don't really know how it was pronounced. Um, but that's the name that means I am, right? We have that at the beginning, the first, and then with the last, we have this alternate formula, I am he. What's Isaiah trying to say here? I think he's trying to remind us that God has a special kind of existence, not like our existence, which is changing and fluctuating and falling apart. No, God exists unchanging from age to age. God is the unchanging being who existed before the world existed, who called the generation from the beginning. In other words, he brings each successive generation into existence by the power of his command. And this is why he is able to raise up leaders. Because he is the eternal Lord, he is also the Lord of history. Theologians call this idea God's providence. God's providence is his preserving and governing all things. We read the Heidelberg Catechism definition of it earlier. You see, God doesn't just create the world and then peace out and say, I've given you guys a good start, but you guys take it from here. No. 
God remains with and in his world, guiding and ruling it at all times so that all things happen according to his plan. So the answer to the question, who has done this, is God has done this. That sounds pretty simple, right? But before we move on, I want us to think about some of the ways in which we could give a wrong answer to that question. Who did this? How can we look out at the world and the unfolding of history and think this has done it where this is, is not God? For instance, we could give all the credit for change in history to charismatic individuals. We could get hung up on the Cyruses of the world. Certainly this happens in politics a lot, right? Um, it's easy to think, oh, if my person just gets into office, then everything will be fixed. Or alternatively, if there's something wrong, you blame it on the other side. And this suffices to say that politics easily degenerates into a cult of personality, where people put their faith in particular human individuals, many examples of this through history. Or maybe we don't think that individuals are what make history, but um, we believe in the idea of progress, the idea that historical forces or movements or the spirit of humanity or something like that will, will just move us forward in the right direction. Now, I associate this with Marxism in particular, but I think that it's, it's almost everywhere now. The idea that I, you know, we're on the right side of history, and history is going to, to prove that, that we're right and, and, and everybody else is wrong. Just kind of a faith in history of itself to go in the right direction. Alternatively, you could answer the question with nothing. Nothing is in charge. Um, history is, there's no meaning or purpose to it. It's just kind of a tragic mess. A tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing, to use the words of Macbeth. But a Christian view of history has to give the answer, God has done it. And you see, that relativizes all these other answers. It's not that those other factors don't matter. It's not that it's not at all important who's in political leadership or, or, about, or that historical processes or movements don't matter. But at the end of the day, God is the one who is in control. We should never take those other things so seriously that we forget who is really in charge, the Lord. Okay, so that's the first point. God shows his sovereignty by raising up this king. Second point, God exercises his providence to deliver his people. Or in other words, what's it all about? We can say that God is sovereign over history, but what, what is he trying to do? What's his purpose? Well, this passage moves on to talk about two groups of people. The first group is the nations, and we see them reacting in fear at this undefeatable king. Verse 5, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. They are terrified. But rather than drawing near to God in repentance, they actually draw near to each other in a desperate attempt to defy God's judgment. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the, strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. See, rather than relying on God for strength, these humans try to strengthen each other. And our attention is especially directed towards the different groups of idle craftsmen, the people who would make these, these 
images for religious worship. Um, Notice the irony here. Instead of turning to their creator, they turn to their creations, the things that they themselves have made. Um, There's this echo of Genesis 1. You remember when God creates something in Genesis 1? What does he say? And it says God saw that it was good. But here we have them saying of their idolatrous creations, it is good. And then what do they do? They nail their idols to the floor. That's smart. You wouldn't want them to fall over. You wouldn't want somebody to come and be able to steal them or invaders to be able to, you know, take them away. Better nail your idols down. You see the difference here. Unlike the eternal I am, these idols are unstable. They're tottering. They could fall over any minute without human help. So that's how the nations react. But then the passage moves on from the nations to address Israel. And in contrast to the terrified nations, the main theme of these verses is fear not. Fear not is repeated in verses 10, 13, and 14. And why should Israel not fear? Well, it's because God has chosen them. Verse 8, You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. Note that the fundamental reason that they should not fear is not based on themselves or anything that they have done, but it's in God's sovereign choice. Here we already have some of the building blocks of what we call the doctrine of election, which is going to be developed much more in the New Testament. Um, that that our salvation rests ultimately on God's free choice of us. And God reminds them how far back that choice goes, that God chose Abraham and their Abraham's offspring. Um, God chose Abraham as his friends. He had a close, intimate relationship with God. And just as God brought Abraham from the east to the land of promise, so he will bring Israel back from the east to the land. So God's commitment to Israel stretches back generations. I have chosen you and have not cast you off. Such an important thing for Israel to hear because that was an easy interpretation of the exile. God had brought judgment upon them and it was easy for them to think God's done with us. He's cast us off. No, God says. Contrary to all appearances, God has not and will not abandon Israel. And because of God's commitment, he will strengthen them, he will help them, he will hold their right hand. Verse 13, what a wonderful intimate picture that is. God's going to grab them by the hand. I am with you, he says. I am your God. He is their redeemer, and being a redeemer means he's the one who's going to buy them back from slavery. Israel is chosen as God's servant. It's going to be an important word in the rest of the book, by the way. Um, Servant, it shows up a lot in Isaiah. And it has some different meanings. Sometimes Cyrus, this pagan king, is described as God's servant. Sometimes the servant seems to be a different figure, maybe a prophet or some other religious leader. Um, Ultimately, we know that the servant passages point forward to Jesus as the Messiah, as the ultimate servant. But a lot of the time, the servant is also God's people, Israel, corporately, altogether. Um, We'll get into this more. Every time we see this, we'll have to think, okay, what does the servant mean here? Um, S.R. Driver, a very intelligent Old Testament professor, gave up on the idea of writing a commentary on Isaiah because he couldn't figure out this servant stuff. 
so we might have to wrestle with it a bit. But here, at least, it's pretty clear that the servant is God's people corporately. Israel being God's servant means that God is giving them a mission, a calling in the world. But importantly, it always starts with God's choice. That's true for every kind of servant in the end of Isaiah. God is the one who raises them up and empowers them for their work. So God calls Israel a servant, but he doesn't just call Israel a servant. He also calls them a worm. Did you notice that? And there's maybe a little, I don't know, did it strike you as a little strange? Um, of course, we saw in the last chapter that for God, human beings are all kind of like, you know, little grasshoppers jumping around. We, we saw that, that image. Um, so perhaps it's not surprising to see him call Israel a worm, but what does it mean? Is God saying he's disgusted with Israel? That's one way that we could interpret it. But I don't think that's quite what the passage is saying. Um, in fact, isn't this the term David uses to describe himself in Psalm 22:7? I am a worm and not a man. And there, this language of being a worm and not a man, it describes his feeling of shame and humiliation before his enemies and his detractors. He's been dehumanized, literally, <laughs> into a worm. I mean, not literally, but um, he's been treated like a worm, seen as a worm. And I think that God is recognizing that feeling when he takes up this name. Um, Israel in exile has suffered this crushing humiliation. Compared to the forces at play on the world stage in these grand empires, they might as well be a little worm. And God is taking that up. He's, he's recognizing that perception. But I also feel like this word is spoken with a sort of affection. I mean, Israel may feel like a worm. They may be in this weak, powerless, and pitiful state, but God still loves them. And isn't that just like God to take the weak and powerless things of the world and exalt them? Here's a way to think about it. How many of you have been enjoying the cicadas we've been having recently? I think, I think there's, you know, kids, have you been enjoying them? I think there's two schools of thought here. Some people are just like, ooh, yuck, when is it going to be over? And then I know some of you actually think they're kind of cool. Maybe you play with them, want to watch them a lot. I think that God's in the second category here. I think God thinks that cicadas are cool. One piece of evidence I'll give you for that, he made them. So, I mean, he must, <laughs> he must, he must not hate them entirely. Um, and I think that's kind of what's going on here with him calling Israel a worm. He's recognizing how small and little they are, but he still loves them. He's still going to make them their servant, even though there might seem to be much greater candidates on the world stage. So the upshot of this whole picture about God being with them and them being his servant is that God is going to deliver Israel from her enemies. Remember the thing I told you to remember. This is all a big court scene. Um, that's why, why is God's judgment coming upon the nations? It's because they're attacking his people. In verses 11 through 12, they are called those who are incensed against you, those who strive against you, those who seek to contend with you, those who, are, who war against you. Actually, one of those terms, those who strive against you, actually seems to be lawsuit language, like bringing a case against somebody, maybe even slandering them to try to get them executed. So the nations are pictured as attacking Israel like a prosecutor in court. But God is going to 
justify Israel. He's going to vindicate Israel's claim in the courtroom of history, if you will. It's the nations that are going to be put to shame and destroyed and made like nothing. There's my dissertation topic again. By the way, I don't know if you know, I'm writing about nothing, and here it is again. Nothingness. Though the nations seem great and mighty, and Israel seems like a little insignificant worm, it's actually the nations that are going to be reduced to nothing, while Israel triumphs. And actually, Israel has a part in that judgment. Verses 15 to 16 say that God will make Israel like a threshing sledge. I'm sure you all know what a threshing sledge is, right? Maybe not. Maybe, the, maybe you haven't threshed grain recently. But in the ancient world, when they harvested the grain, you know, they would cut it down, and they would take the ears of grain and pile them up all over the threshing floor, and they would take a large board that was covered on one side, on the bottom, with small flint or iron razors. And they would have a donkey pull it over the pile of grain, and it would cut apart and separate the ear of grain from the rest of the stalk. And they would, you know, go, to go at it a, a few times until the grain was fully separated. And then they would winnow it. They would toss it in the air, and the wind would carry away the chaff, but the heavier grain would fall down. And so it was a way of purifying the grain. God says that Israel is going to be like a threshing sledge, threshing the mountains and the hills and then winnowing them so that the wind can take them away. Essentially, God says he's going to judge the nations through Israel. Now, I know that these violent Old Testament passages can be a little difficult, can't they? Um, and uh, I mean, especially when it seems like God is licensing people to be violent. What's going on with that? And I actually picked Psalm 149 for the Old Testament reading today because it's a great example of the same thing. It kind of brings this theme to the fore. You know, half of it is this wonderful psalm of praise, and then you know, it switches with the praise in their mouth and swords in their hands, right? And they're going to go and bring vengeance upon the nations. What should we think about this? Well, a couple of points here. Um, First of all, this passage is talking about people who attack God's people. Verse 12, those who war against you. So we are always talking about a war of self-defense. Unlike the gods of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, God never tells his people to conquer the entire world, to bring it into one empire through aggressive conquest. And God is not encouraging them to rejoice in seeking vengeance against their enemies. Rather, they're rejoicing in the Lord for delivering them. The joy is in the Lord and his deliverance, not in the vengeance. Um, and finally, of course, a really important point to make. These passages are intimately connected with God's old covenant administration um, for life in the land, which, where, where physical blessings and curses are there to represent spiritual realities. But we know that now, under the new covenant, our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with spiritual forces. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 6, 12. So we have to understand how Jesus has changed how we relate to these passages. All that said, one only has to go read Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah to see that Israel would be threatened by physical force, and that God did in fact deliver them through military victory on occasion, as he promises to do here. The enemies of God's people cannot prevail against them because God is with them. Okay, I know it's a complicated issue. I probably haven't answered all of your questions. That's just the beginning. If you want to talk to me more about it, let me know. Um, but let me ask you, 
How do we apply this point to us today? How are you feeling about the world today? How about, how are you feeling about politics? Does the word fear ever come into the territory of how you are feeling? I mean, Israel certainly had reason to fear, right? A tiny people group in a large empire with powerful enemies, an empire that was often indifferent and hostile to them. And we, inhabitants of America, were probably better off than the subjects of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, or the Medo-Persian Empire. There's still a lot to be frightened of, isn't there? Politics feels very unstable right now, and the threat of violence feels closer than it has in times past. Then, of course, if we look beyond our earthly concerns and consider our spiritual enemies, as the New Testament describes them, things might look even scarier. Satan continues to wage his war against the church. His wrath is terrible, and his power is great. How do we respond to all of this? Well, one temptation is to go nail down our idols, isn't it? To take all the vain human efforts that we're trusting in and try to shore them up in some way. If my side can just get the political power, if I can just argue the right position with my cleverness, if I can get enough money to weather any storm, I will be safe. But just like reinforcing a mute, powerless, carved block of wood, this is a fool's errand, because these things are all fundamentally unable to help us, no matter how much we invest in them. The good news is that God has spoken a word in this passage that interrupts our foolish fear. I want you to hear what God is saying to you in this passage today. If you have placed your trust in him, This is what God says to you. Fear not. I have chosen you. You're standing before me. It's not based on what you do. It's based on the choice I have already made. I have chosen you. You are my beloved child. I'm with you. I'm going to hold your hand. You're not going to be put to shame. Nobody who comes to bring a case against you is going to succeed. Fear not. These are God's words to us today. And if God is with us, who can stand against us? Amen? So that's the second point. God exercises his providence to deliver his people. Third point, God transforms the wilderness into a garden. Verse 17, When the poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. The people are presented here as the poor and needy dying of thirst. We're reminded that God delights, again, in the poor and the marginalized, the people the world considers to be worms, those who are weak and foolish in the world's eyes. And the plight of God's people is represented as thirst in the desert, seeking water where there is none. And that was definitely a more lived reality for people living in the ancient Near East than it is perhaps for us here in Maryland. Water was a serious business. But God will hear and answer them. Verse 18, I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. 
God displays his miraculous life-giving power by bringing water in the desert, bringing life in the land of death. This miracle transforms the desert into a garden. Verse 19 says, I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. This isn't a random list of trees, by the way. These are holy trees. Um, acacia wood was a key ingredient for the, instruction, for the construction of the tabernacle. Uh, cedar, cypress, plain, and pine were all used in the construction of the temple. Meanwhile, the myrtle and the olive were used in the festival of Sukkot, sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. That was when the whole people would come to Jerusalem and build temporary shelters using some of these trees, which reminded them of their time spent dwelling with God in the wilderness when he brought them out of Egypt. The tabernacle, the temple, and this festival, what do they all have in common? Well, they all emphasize God's dwelling with his people. In other words, God's rejuvenation of the wilderness does not only accomplish the bare minimum of keeping the poor alive, Rather, he abundantly furnishes it with materials to celebrate God's dwelling with his people. God is creating a holy garden where he can come to dwell with his people, a reversal of everything that went wrong with that first garden of Eden back in Genesis. So it's not surprising when verse 20 draws this all to the main point, knowing God. Verse 20, that they may see and know may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Not only has God done it, he has created it. In other words, this deliverance will be a new creation. God will show his mastery as creator, the one who brought the whole world into existence in the first place. This is a good reminder that God's delivering power in history is not limited to the set of causes that we can understand. Our idea of history is very limited by what we can comprehend. The laws of physics, the normal course of human affairs, but God is not limited by these things. He is the creator. He brings life out of nothing, water in the barren wilderness. In fact, he delights to do so, to deliver specifically the poor and needy in the most hopeless situations. And it's especially these situations, the ones that are hopeless by human terms, where we can know God's power as creator, as he brings us through them anyway. Okay, so that's my third point. God transforms the wilderness into a garden. Finally, how does this connect to Jesus? Well, one thing we'll be returning to again and again as we go through Isaiah is that Jesus is the ultimate servant of God. That means he fulfills all the different senses of the word servant in this book, and we're going to see that as we go through it. And this includes the way servant is applied to the people of God corporately. It's interesting, if you, if you read the New Testament, you can notice this principle occurring again and again, that Jesus reenacts the story of God's people in his individual life. You know, as the head of the body of the church, the reality of God's people is summed up in him, and you know, the gospel writers emphasize that Jesus, um, especially Matthew, that Jesus reenacts Israel's story when he goes down to Egypt and comes back out of Egypt. 
So the New Testament authors frequently apply prophecies about the people of Israel corporately to Jesus individually. And as I was thinking about the themes of this passage and how they're fulfilled in Christ, I noticed how some of the same themes came together in Acts 4. That's the passage I had John read earlier. In Acts 4, the apostles have just been questioned by the religious authorities in the wake of a miraculous healing, and they've boldly held to their preaching of the truth. After their release, they reflect on who Jesus is. The passage that John, uh, the passage John read for us there, that's where, we, where it started. They quote Psalm 2 about the nations gathering together to plot against God's anointed king, a very similar passage to our own today where the nations come to attack God's people. And they see Psalm 2 fulfilled in the opposition of the nations to Jesus and his gospel. Verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So they look at these Old Testament prophecies about the nations coming to attack God's people and God's king, and they say, look, it happened there with Jesus. God is the Lord. Uh, um, Notice the rather striking fact, by the way, that Israel is included with the nations that attack God's king. Um, Even God's own people have joined the opposition to his king. And yet God still is sovereign. Look at verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God is the Lord of history and he has chosen his king. So even if all of the nations array against him, in the end, they still carry out God's plan. The design that was for evil, that they had intended for evil, actually ends up working out God's good purposes. And so, the disciples look to God to continue this work with signs and wonders. They're confident that God will prosper what they're doing. All the world's power and wrath was vented on Jesus, but it could not thwart God's plan. In a way, Jesus is like Cyrus. In him, all the nations of the world are judged. Uh, Through their opposition to God's king, their sinfulness is exposed. Then, when when God raises Jesus from the dead, he vindicates Jesus. He proves that Jesus was in the right all along, and consequently, the nations are judged because they're shown to be in the wrong. Even Israel, God's people, is shown to be in the wrong. You can think about Paul at the beginning of Romans, how he's concerned to show how everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, stands under God's wrath by nature. But notice the difference between Jesus and Cyrus here. Cyrus brings God's judgment through political power, physical warfare, and destruction. But Jesus is a different kind of king. Jesus defeats and judges the world by coming in weakness, by dying on a cross. He wins by losing. Not only that, but he defeats his enemies by loving them and dying for them. So that though they are judged, they can still be forgiven. On the cross, he's saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You see, at the cross, we are all judged That's the significance of Israel's inclusion in the nations, by the way. Even God's people are revealed to be sinful at the cross. And even Jesus' disciples abandon him. But at the cross, a word of forgiveness 
is also spoken to us. A word of forgiveness that's not only for Israel, but that's for all the Gentiles, everybody who puts their trust in him. At the cross, we see that Jesus is the only perfect servant of God, the only one who perfectly heeded God's word, fear not. From the Garden of Gethsemane and through his whole ordeal, he braved the dangers of death on the cross, trusting that God would vindicate him and raise him from the dead. You see, it's in Jesus that any of us are God's chosen servants. It's not because of any worthiness in us, but because our sins are forgiven by Christ's death and his perfect servant obedience is imputed to us, perfectly satisfying God's righteousness. And so now we are his servants and we are sent into the world, not to thresh the world in judgment, by the way, although there is a day of judgment coming. But now is the time when the gospel goes forth, when the news of God's grace in Christ goes out to the nations. Notice how the cross reshaped the disciples' understanding of God's promise. You can see this sometimes in the gospels, that that they thought the Messiah was going to come to side with Israel politically and help them make war against, I don't know, the Romans, um, whoever else they needed to fight against. Instead, what they learned from Jesus was that Israel was under God's judgment just as much as the nations, but that the Messiah had come to bring grace to them along with the nations. Friends, God's gracious plan in Christ is the key to history. No, it doesn't explain God's purpose for every dark and evil thing that happens. It doesn't tell us in detail how everything is going to play out. But if even the murder of God's Messiah works out according to God's plan. His sovereign choice to bring mercy, grace, and life, then all the darkness in this world cannot defeat the purpose of God's grace. If God can bring grace and life out of that, he can bring it out of anything. And that should give us a lot of hope. When we feel like we're in the desert, without water, when we feel like small despised worms in a hostile world, in Christ, God is with us. He is our God. He holds our hand. Since God has brought life out of death in Christ, we know that he can pour abundant water in our desert places. In Christ, God says to us, fear not. I am the one that helps you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in Christ. We thank you that although we sinful humans rejected and killed him, nevertheless, that turned out to be your sovereign plan for our salvation. We thank you that in Christ we receive forgiveness of sins and we are made your servants. We pray that you would be with us. We pray that you would help us to remember that you hold our right hand, that you care for us. And we pray that you would be at work in us by your Spirit, helping us more and more to serve you out of and to not fear and be bold, because you are with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.